and it's my pleasure to introduce the speaker from our lead sponsor, Reaction Engines. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Mark Hempsell, who's the future programs director of Reaction Engines, who I'm sure will have some interesting words to say. Mark, over to you. Okay. Uh, yes, I am from the lead sponsor, but uh, for reasons that will become apparent as I give this talk, this is definitely a private uh, paper uh, with some reflections on a commonality of culture between uh, Russian and British space thinking. If we go to Gagarin's uh, flight, which, like, like ever since, it seems to be the day for remembering where you were, uh, I was in the living room of uh, my parents' house, and I saw it on television, because we had a television, not radio. Um, I was six and a half, and at that age, the half matters. Fifty years on, funnily, it doesn't. Um, and I remember being extremely disappointed there were no pictures. But nevertheless, even at six and a half, you could grasp that something pretty spectacular had happened. Now, um, if you go back to the very early days of aviation, you sort of hear sort of the Wright brothers and Verilo and everything. The guy who flew the aeroplane was the guy who did the technology. But in more recent times, and especially in space, we've gone to the Cayley model of having somebody else fly the thing while the engineer stays and therefore is there to uh, learn from the results. And so as an engineer, for me, the real hero is Sergei Koryalov, whose design bureau both produced the Vostok spacecraft and the R-7 launch vehicle. Now, the Vostok was really a, a sort of X-plane, and what Koryalov's vision actually centered on was the Soyuz spacecraft. If you go to Dave Shaler's and Rex Hall's wonderful book on the subject, they call it the Universal Spacecraft. It was designed as a working tool to conquer the space at least out to the moon. It was a vehicle with a purpose in mind to transport human beings and get them to places. And that has built up with other pieces of infrastructure to give Russia, when the space shuttle uh, is decommissioned, Russia will have, unarguably, the most complete space capability in the world and have constantly maintained that capability. And I want to explore a little bit of the culture that led to that being the case. But before I do that, I need to do a bit of audience participation. Now, it's not the embarrassing sort where you have to put your hand up or actually do anything. I just want you to think of something. I want you to um, think of the subject we're dealing with. What is the area we're dealing with? Now, I suspect most of you will say, well, it's obvious we're dealing with space or it's aerospace. Um, I'm going to concentrate on the word aerospace because I think this makes the point uh, a little better. The word aerospace was first used in 1958 from a U.S. Air Force training academy in Alabama. Um, and it rapidly became a route in America to link aeronautics and space activity. Um, it's interesting it came from the United States Air Force because at the time, the United States Air Force wasn't in space. Vanguard, the, um, the, the official program to get America into space, was Navy. And the Redstone um, launcher that eventually did it was Army. U.S. Air Force wasn't there. Uh, and that didn't, you know, how did that arise? Obviously, the Air Force is the, the body that deals with space. And in the early 60s, with this constant use of the word aerospace and the linking of the two, um, that became uh, the culture that it's, uh, a space is part of the aeronautical industry. It's something that the aeronautical industry does and um, has common objectives with the aeronautical industry. However, a few of you 
might have thought that, no, it's, this is astronautics. That's what you think of. Now, astronautics, people use... This is actually a very good discriminator in the English-speaking world. If you see the word space or aerospace, you know you're dealing with the aeronautical industry playing in the space arena. If you see the word astronautics, you're dealing with people who think of it as a separate entity that has the same relationship to aeronautics that aeronautics has to motor cars and bicycles. And it's absurd to call it uh, part of the aeronautical industry as it would be, part, it would be for the motor industry to say the, air, the aircraft industry is part of our industry. And this unique separate identity to astronautics goes along with a vision about mankind moving out into space that extends back to the pre-Second World War thinkers on the subject. So the premise that I'm going to put to you is that in the Soviet Union, people who had astronautics, the astronautics vision, the astronaut religion, all go back to these 1930s pre-war vision about what going into space meant. And this is what established the culture that is a, is a ends culture, not a means culture. It is what's important is what you can do in space, not what your technology is or how it links with your aerospace companies or anything else. Now, let me say, this is not black and white. This is shades of grey. So, yes, you will see, uh, you will see exceptions to this. I'm going to show you a couple, but I will contend that it is part of this culture. I must also say that I'm not being uh, pejorative here. I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. Uh, clearly, virtually everybody except Russia and Britain use them as common, um, as a common industry, and it's very successful in its own terms in that right. So, let us look at the Soviet Union. Fortunately, a lot of the subject here has already been covered by Nick Spall in particular. Koryalov, um, Mishin, and Gushko, the three I want to start with, they successively ran the design bureau that became Energia. Um, we've already heard about the relationship between Koryalov and Glushko, which could, Frosty barely covers it. Um, but they did both go back to the group studying reactive motors that later on became sort of embraced by the state. And both were running design bureaus, although Glushko essentially promoted and ended up running the Energia one. Um, I don't know if it was an addition to or as a move from his own rocket engine design bureau. Mishin, um, who was Koryalov's deputy, was too young to be part of that group. He sort of started his career during the Second World War, but was immediately under Koryalov and just lived and breathed Koryalov and, of course, going back to Konstantin Tsiolkovsky's works. Now, so the first point is these guys are ardent astronautical visionaries. That's not the whole story. Here's the exception. Chemerly is an aircraft man. He gets into it um, after the Second World War through missiles. He also runs a design bureau. Um, his design bureau does, I think, still exist, although his legacy really lies within the Krunichev organization. And a lot of the infrastructure Russia uses also comes from him. But it may be just my viewing on the subject, but it does seem to me that Chemilov, who was seen as Korolov's great rival, was really dancing to Korolov's tune. Korolov was the one setting the agenda and setting the vision, if you like, and the culture behind Russian space. 
So the first thing is the links there. The second thing I've mentioned, but let me emphasize the point, they are running the design bureaus. They are the equivalents of the heads of NASA. They directly interact with the political system to get money. They are on top. They are in control of the program. The third thing is that those design bureaus are specialist rocket, missile, and indeed, eventually, specialist space bureaus. They're not contaminated with aircraft. Um, so those are the three key points I want to take away on Russia. We then compare that with America. Well, America had visionaries too after the war. It imported them from Germany. Um, I've shown here Werner von Braun, who's the archetypal one with Hermann Oberth, just in case you didn't realize that von Braun does go back to pre-war thinking in spades. Uh, and Krafta Rika is one that a lot of us have a lot of time and respect for. Um, but of course, this is the English-speaking world they're now in, and that the English-speaking world follows Churchill's maxim is scientists should be on tap, not on top. And they are not running anything. They're, they're really quite low down in the pecking order, as the, the rather good talk this morning showed. It's interesting that they're German. I just want to explore that because there is a puzzle here which I can't fully resolve for you. Um, where's the American homegrown visionaries? Now, the Americans... Uh, started with the American Interplanetary Society, which, although it was founded by science fiction writers, they were very hard science fiction writers, rapidly got some serious engineers in, probably too much serious engineering. Uh, it changed its name to the American Rocket Society, and in analysis by Bainbridge, um, who I'm calling on at this point, it becomes clear that they're virtually not a space society anymore. Um, in 1945 the editor of the journal sort of comments, I don't know whether it was a, a, a concerned comment, but commented that it had been a long time since he published anything on interplanetary flight. Uh, it obviously had an effect because 10% of his papers in the following year were on interplanetary flight. For this talk, I had a look through Alan Bond's wonderful archive and discovered a load of 1950s copies of this journal, and it had nothing on interplanetary flight. When that society applied for affiliation to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers in 1945, it mentioned that it dealt with rockets and jet engines. It did not mention anything about space. Um, so, although a lot of good work came out of that society, there is, it, for some reason, I cannot fathom it lost the vision. That doesn't mean there wasn't vision in the United States. There was, in the form of Robert Goddard, I show this rather bad photograph of Robert Goddard because it does show him against one of his later rockets. And his rockets, apart from the size, were as sophisticated as the V2 rocket. He had, they were liquid propellant, they were stabilized, he was, he was solving all the things. They were technically, uh, pretty much on a par. He had, uh, again, this problem in the English-speaking world is everywhere else in the world, like Russia, visionaries are embraced as an important part of society moving forward. In the English-speaking world, visionaries are a good laugh, and a lot of people had a good laugh at Robert Goddard. He took that rather badly and decided the best thing to do was to keep quiet and not get ridiculed. Fair enough. It wasn't that really he was a recluse, because when Oberth contacted him, um, it looks like Goddard just sort of poured his heart out to him, which because he's what? set Oberth up on his uh, reaction. So it wasn't that he was a recluse or a secretive, it's just he didn't like people making fun of him. Fair enough. Um, but it does mean that he wasn't really doing much by way of influencing, and of course he did the other unfortunate things. He died at the end of the Second World War and therefore was not around to do influencing later on. So as a consequence, when NASA is formed, 
note my test case, NASA uses the word space, it doesn't use the word astronautics. Um, and where is the vision? Uh, it's very difficult to find, and the people who are running it, the equivalents, really, of uh, people like Koreloff and Chamonix, are Thomas Geenan, James Webb, and Thomas Paine, who are very good bureaucrats. They are just career public servants. They have actually very little connection, even with the aeronautical world, let alone the space world. Um, in America, the vision doesn't exist, and it becomes, you can see already in NASA, aeronautics is linked with space. It becomes a part of the aeroplane industry, and that doesn't mean that you've grasped what the game's about. What happened in Britain, which of course is the other comparison point I want to make, Britain starts off very much in the American mold and with then some vengeance. Um, Alan pointed out to me as I was discussing this with him uh, a point that we often forget. Britain is probably, I can't think of another case, but do tell me one if you can think of one, Britain has suffered the worst bombardment from ballistic missiles of any nation on the planet. It is therefore very surprising that we were one of the last to realise it might be a good idea to develop a ballistic missile. Uh, but we did get going with the Blue Street programme. Um, that goes to an aircraft company, to Havilland, and I'm a de Havilland man, so I'm not going to knock that. Um, and so it's following very much the American model, uh, except with the proviso that whereas everywhere else in the world, yes, America's system has not grasped the space vision as embodied by the 1930s, but they at least grasp that this is space, it's going to be important, we need to do something about it. In Britain, we have a bunch of career civil servants who read Eagle when they were kids and thought, this is Dan Dare, this is ludicrous, we are not going to be doing space in any way, shape or form. However, in the Ballistic Missile Program, there are visionaries. In fact, there's a huge British visionary started by the Interplanetary Society, which copied the American Interplanetary Society, but didn't turn to the dark side, um, and had a lot of visionaries, including um, somebody who really is on a par with Von Braun and Korinoff, uh, Valentine Cleaver, and there's a biography of him being prepared by the British Interplanetary Society, which hopefully will do some extent to restore and remind people about just how important he was as a thinker. Um, but where is he? He's the project manager within Rolls-Royce for the engines for Blue Streak. He, again, is a long, 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 long way away from talking to politicians and determining policy. So the start point is America with an added anti-space dimension to it, but that added space dimension, uh, anti-space dimension, does actually have a very strange impact because... The policy that you can trace back to the 1960s, and it lies within the civil service, not necessarily so much with the elected politicians, is that in particular we don't do launch vehicles and we don't do manned space flight. And of course if you've got the space flight vision, those are the two things that are the most important things to do. So what they did, and it took them nearly 30 years, but they managed to slowly squeeze all the aeronautical industry out of the space business. Um, in that if you're in Britain and you're an aeronautical company, getting into space is a very, very poor, poor business move. What that left, it doesn't mean that, that Britain stopped thinking about launch vehicles and manned spaceflight, far from it, but it means those people doing it are absolutely start raving mad, bug-eyed lunatics for the astronautical vision. 
they are fanatics. It's the only way you stay in business in the UK and, and are motivated to do something is if you have the astronautical vision um, built into your soul. Um, so what we have today is, uh, like Russia, the space industry, uh, and I'm talking about the upstream industry, it does exist in this country, it's small, very small compared with the size of our aeroplane industry, but it is separate companies. They're separate organizations. We don't have the common aerospace companies uh, pretty much anywhere in Britain. The other thing we have is those people who are thinking about it, like in Russia, their culture can be directly traced back to the 1930s pre-war vision. Now, I called this talk an exchange of vision because it sounded really good down the telephone when I was being pressed for a title. And then, of course, I had this sort of nervous thing of trying to think where the exchange took place because I'm quite certain that Russia doesn't pay much attention to what goes on in Britain, although we do pay a lot of attention to what goes on in Russia. However, there was one occasion where the exchange did take place, which was the interim hotel program. Now, on the um, British side, <clears throat> that program was led by Bob, Bob Parkinson of the uh, then British Aerospace Space Division, uh, this is the last gasp of aeronautics being connected to astronautics. Um, now, where's Bob? Let's put him in the picture. I've shown him against a British Interplanetary Society sign because he's currently president of the British Interplanetary Society. And if you read his work, his book, Citizens of the Sky, any of his papers, particularly the ones uh, in the late 70s, early 80s in spaceflight, he is about as radical and as ardent uh, astronautical guy as you can get. Um, it was the Russians who initiated the contact. They said at the Paris Air Show in uh, 89, uh, look, come over to our Antonov exhibit, we've got something to show you. Uh, they went inside the Antonov and they had been set up as a display room with um, Hotol being shown on top of the Antonov. That led to um, discussions. So by 1991, there was a program underway, funded by British Aerospace um, I'm not too sure where the Russian funding came from. And um, unfortunately, that was the time the British Aerospace finally decided to get rid of its space division, uh, the effect of the policy finally taking place. And so the Russians, literally on the day the Russians were there, um, a lot of people were receiving redundancy notices because British Aerospace was getting out of this business. The Russians, very much to their credit, so realized what was going on, said, well, look, we're not going to abandon you. And studies and programs were kept going until 1994. Um, but this did not progress, and the fault is quite clearly on the British side as to why it didn't. However, uh, Interim Hotel, as you probably know, was a, a follow-on to a, an earlier program, Hotel. And that is still alive in the form of Skylon, which you've heard about once or twice already today. Again, in the context of this lecture, where does it come from? Well, the, the visionary behind the engines, uh, the managing director of the company doing it, which is a specialist space company, um, is Alan Bond. And once again, you look at his credentials, this is about as ardent uh, astronautical visionary um, and uh, as you can get, uh, right, right all the way through about capability, about conquering space. He is the 60s civil servant, complete nightmare. He was inspired by Dan Dare, um, and therefore obviously beyond the pale. Um, the difference now is that, as you've heard, there is a difference of a, a changing mood within Britain, particularly within government circles. Uh, we're not there yet, but we are getting there. 
And I would like to think that maybe uh, if it does start pulling together, this time um, through to fruition, that the arrangement and the goodwill that was generated by Interim Hotel was, is once again rekindled and kept going. Um, I forgot to mention in my slide on that that the cooperation between the Russians and the British on that program was very strong. Um, the Russians was, were very praiseworthy about dealing with Brits. Apparently Bob told me, told me that the, they were very keen that Brits fielded engineers where all the other nations fielded managers. Um, Bob then told me all the people who went on the missions and they all sounded like managers to me. Uh, but, but there was clearly some, some sort of commonality of vision there. So for two completely, you know, the complete opposites of political uh, motivation, will, ability to fund has ended up producing almost identical results aside from the minor difference that they have the only complete space capability in the world and we have absolutely none at all. But leaving that little difference aside, um, because of the Russian system, which takes domain experts right to the top, so domain experts run the activity, um, the visionaries ended up right at the top running it and creating a culture which we would recognize as the astronautical vision. In the UK, the government complete um, antipathy and, and, and to the thing and a complete non-support purged all the aeronauticals out of the industry and left us again with astronautical visionaries. It left both industries with specialist space com um, companies. Uh, so again, uh, to emphasize that this may be uh, something which means we might have very productive cooperation on this in this area in the future. And we'll leave you with the Rorschach test of which of these two images speaks to you the most and say thank you. <laughs>